0: So we're asking the central question, you know we're asking it because we printed it on the front, who is Jesus? And we're doing that by examining how Jesus is like all sorts of things that people already knew, only bigger. So it's understandable, therefore, that Hebrews draws upon some of the best-known characters and situations and themes in the Old Testament, but then in the middle of it we have this extended treatment of one of the most obscure characters in the Bible, a man about whom only four verses are written, three in Genesis, one in Psalms. So what's going on with that then? Why this guy? Why Melchizedek and why devote so much time and space to him? I did math. Uh, 84.1% of everything said in the Bible about Melchizedek is said uh, right here in Hebrews. So... That's a lot from a little. What's going on? Well, chapter 7, verses 1 and 2 tell us first that he was a king, but no ordinary king. Melchizedek predated all the kings of Israel by about a thousand years, and as the king of righteousness or justice, integrity, purity of life, this obscure man is described in Genesis as being uniquely good more apt to judge than be judged, you might say. An intimidating character. But he was also the king of peace. And this is the Old Testament word, shalom. It's a technical word meaning deep, abiding relationship with God. So Melchizedek, we don't know much about him, but in just this little tiny snippet of information, we see symbolically at least he is the perfect king Uniquely at one with God. Oh, by the way, Genesis says, as well as being a king, he's also a priest. What do priests do? Well, they mediate all of that good stuff for you. And so, as a priest, Melchizedek was able to bring people into righteousness with him and into peace with him as well. And last week, Ben said he was no ordinary priest. All the other priests in the Old Testament, every single one of them, came from the tribe of Levi. But Melchizedek existed before Levi did. And he blessed Levi through Levi's ancestor, and thus he was superior to every other priest in the whole of biblical history. He's like a king, only bigger. He's like a priest, only bigger. He's uniquely placed, if you like, to be the ruler and the mediator of both righteousness and peace. So, little tiny character, big deal. That's Melchizedek. And then, frustratingly, after just three verses in Genesis, Melchizedek disappears from the pages of history completely. We don't know where did he come from or where did he go. We don't even know if he got married a long time ago or anything else about him at all. For a thousand years, we've got absolutely nothing until he appears again in the middle of Psalm 110 for just one verse in the context of a promise of another king to rule forever like a king, only bigger, and another priest to pastor the people forever like a priest, only bigger. You can see the psalm quoted there in verse 17 when the editors of our Bibles uh, typeset quotes, they kind of indent them just a little bit. And there you see verse 17 that this character, this person like Melchizedek only bigger, will come after the order of Melchizedek. So we've got four verses. That's it. He is obscure. But you can see why the writer of Hebrews would be so excited by a character like this, can't you? If Hebrews takes all the biggest and best ideas from the Old Testament and amplifies them to show how Jesus is like all of those things, only bigger, you can see how Melchizedek is guaranteed to come up, even if he's a little tiny character, because he's such a big deal. And they waited about 2,000 years from Melchizedek version 1.0, For this second, bigger, better Melchizedek to come. And then he arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. Or in the alternative, we're still waiting. It's one or the other. So let's explore today whether Jesus really is the one they were waiting for. Or whether we should all still be waiting. There is a lot of text. It's dense. Uh, You read it quickly and and perfectly. Um, Thank you. And uh, you'll want it open in front of you. You want your Bible open always because uh, it's a church, and we're in chapter seven, verse eleven. <laughs> I need like that. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood—that's the old priesthood—for under it people receive the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Basically, the argument is this, if all the old priests from Levi were good enough, then what need would there ever have been for a bigger, better priest? Uh, We could all just still be Jews, and we could all still be fine, but there were two main problems with the old system, Hebrews says. First, verse 19, the law, the old Levitical code and the Levites that did legal things, made nothing perfect the law that governed the work of the priests didn't really fix anything at all, not fully. The law was a really good way of showing you how holy God was. And it was a really good way of showing you how unholy you were. And it was a great way of nudging you to repent. And it was a great mechanism through which you could repent. You could reset the clock, if you like, through the law. But you had to keep resetting it because you kept messing up over and over again. The law could only give you a temporary fix. It never brought you into permanent righteousness, and therefore the law never brought you into permanent peace either. You get right, you mess up, you get right again, you mess up again, and that was life under the law. You know what it's like, don't you? When you have a whole list of tasks ahead of you, And you've got to do them all. You have to get the car inspected. And you have to get the insurance renewed. And then you have to mow the lawn. And you have to shop for groceries. And you have to cook. And you have to get the kids settled. Or if you are a kid, you have to be settled. And kids don't like to be settled. And then you get it all done. And you get into bed and you go, ah. And then you go, "Ah," because you remember that you've forgotten something. And you do the thing and then you get back into bed and you go, ah. And then you go, ah because you realize you have to do it all again tomorrow. And so, ah, uh, is basically the pattern of life under the law. No permanent righteousness means no permanent peace. So the law, for all of its good, it was good. It was not perfect. It left you in this cycle. And second, the priests were not perfect either. When you went to see a Levitical priest, verse 27 shows us that they had to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. The priest had to reset every day as well. And verse 23, because the priest was no different from anyone else, they kept dying. That's not very encouraging, is it? Really. If the most righteous people in your community We're not righteous enough to survive. What peace is anyone going to have? You can't measure up to a guy who dies. That's not an encouraging thought. So, the best solution they could come up with was just to have a whole bunch of extra priests ready in case too many died at once. That's all they could do, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, they had a pipeline of priests all living less than fully righteous lives, all offering less than a fully peaceful piece of full shalom. It was like, you know, a little bit righteous, and it was like a little bit peaceful. And, you know, it was fine. But that doesn't really sound like God, does it? It doesn't really sound like God's plan, you know. It's going to be fine. If you uh, said to your wife, uh, men in the room who are married, if you said, um, how are you? And she said, I'm fine. W- would, you, would you be okay with that response? Or would you go, hmm, I'm not sure you are, darling. I think we need to have a little chat. You know, ah, <gasps> uh, hmm. that's life, basically. And nowhere in Scripture does God promise, nowhere in the old covenant, nowhere in the, the 39 books of the Bible where to the end... About there. Nowhere in that bit does God say, hey, guess what? I've got this plan and it's going to be fine. I'm going to put you in this stasis, this kind of holding pattern that's, it's all right. You know, it's a bit righteous. It's a bit peaceful, but, you know, a bit stressful. That's not God's eternal plan. That's not the good news. That's not God. God. So woven through those 39 books of the old covenant is a consistent promise that, that a bigger, better kind of king and a bigger, better kind of priest would come to bring you into a permanent kind of righteousness and a permanent kind of peace. That one, after the order of Melchizedek, would return to achieve these things and his kingdom and his ministry would, would be characterized by Perfect proximity and peace forever. And it will never end. So, how do we know Jesus is the one and that we shouldn't still be waiting? Three simple arguments now. First, he's not a Levite. Verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So you can imagine someone coming up and saying, well, Jesus can't be a priest because he's not even from the priestly tribe. So surely his lineage disqualifies him from being a bigger, better kind of a priest. And Hebrews replies, well, maybe you've forgotten these four little verses. There is another type of priest, obscure but important, a bigger, better type. And in fact, therefore, it is Jesus' non-Leviteness that uniquely qualifies him as potentially valid to be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Secondly, unlike the Levitical priests, Jesus lived, verse 16, by the power of an indestructible life. He died, but death could not hold him. No other priest could ever say that. All the stuff that the Levitical priests sacrificed Died and stayed dead. So did all of the Levitical priests themselves. But verse 27 says that Jesus offered up himself, and as one with an indestructible life, he rose from the dead, demonstrating, as promised of Melchizedek, that he would live forever. So, one, not a Levite. Two, not dead. He's two for two. Third, not sinful. Such an extraordinary proposition that verse 26 has to say it five different ways because we don't believe it. So it does. Holy, innocent, unstained, like a perfect priest. Separated and exalted like a perfect king. So what? Uh, First, verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant something better than fine. We're going to dig into the concept of covenant next week. We don't have time this morning, but I just want to address this word guarantor. It's another word that is unique to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews has a lot of words that just don't appear anywhere else in scripture. So if you want to understand guarantor, you have to go through other ancient documents in in Old Greek to understand it, or you have to go through other parts of the Bible and find words that are linked to it, or similar to it, or part of it in some way. Uh, The guarantee, that's a word we can understand, was a bond. It was a surety. It was a pledge. Uh, The word is literally derived from the Greek word for a limb, like an arm or a leg. Uh, So I, I don't know why, but I'm wondering Um, You know, Antonio from the Merchant of Venice, offering Shylock a pound of flesh if his friend defaulted on a loan. Uh, Do you remember that one? I I think that's the kind of image here, that you would put your body on the line for someone. The guarantor, by implication, was, was the fallback plan, that the money, if someone defaulted, well, that's one word. Uh, Garantor, we can also find from our documents, was a word used in Greek culture for the one who, who put up the bridal price of a dowry. That's another use of the word. So you have there, in this mysterious word, a hint that Christ both puts his body on the line somehow and brings you into a deep relationship of some kind. That's what you got in the word. And it's, and it's odd, because normally when someone serves as a guarantor, they would only ever do that if they thought the person was good for the money, and the thing they were going to use it on was good as well, right? To be a guarantor, you need two conditions. So imagine you, you're young, and, and, and you don't have good credit or whatever, and you want to buy your first car, or you want to buy your first home, Uh The guarantor might step in, someone will step in, and they'll do that, won't they? For a good car or a good home, they'll do that, but they're not going to do it for a jalopy or or a flop house. They're not going to do that. And they'll do it for a good person, but they won't do it for a wastrel or a layabout either. They will not guarantee a lost cause, and they will not guarantee someone they know is going to default. Because if they were going to do that, why not just why you the junker in the first place, instead of guaranteeing the loan? When Christ underwrote our debt with his life, he knew all of our failings up front. He knew every ounce of our jalopy flesh, and he knew that we would default. Because for 39 books of the Bible, the holiest people in their culture defaulted every single day of their lives. So we knew that we were going to do it as well. And yet, verse 27 says, in spite of that, he offered up himself. But still, so what? It's good theology, but so what? What actual difference does it make other than, you know, eternal life, which is cool? But apart from that, what actual difference does it make? Well, twice in verses 19 and 25, it says the implication is that we may draw near to God. It was uh, Marion on the podcast who spotted that little point. When you see uh, the same word twice in a passage, that makes you wake up a little. Draw near to God. Well, formerly... Only the Levitical high priest could do that. Only the best of the best could do that. Only once a year, only in a special place, and at considerable risk to his own life. Only once could one man go into the holy of holies behind the curtain, into the very presence of God and draw near. But now, through Christ, we are able to do that, all of us, all the time, everywhere. Because the king of indestructible life died and rose from the dead. And as a priest, what do priests do? They bring people with them. He brings life out of death. He brings dead into life. That's what Jesus achieves. Consequently, verse 25, he's able to save to the uttermost, to the very end, without anything left behind, those who draw near to God through him. You can get close to God now right now, this moment. And you can run away from parts of this room and get even closer because it's not about physical space anymore. And uh, when you get close to God, instead of the Indiana Jones moment and your face melting off, you will actually get more alive because the Lord of life died and rose for you. So this means... As well as righteousness and peace, or to be more accurate, as well as his righteousness and his peace given to you, you're going to get something else unique as well. Verse 19, hope. He gives us hope. You do realize that death is not normally a thing that people hope for, don't you? That's, that's you know, in, in all the Disney movies, the Three Wishes, the Genie, you know, no one goes, well, I think death. Like, that doesn't happen. (laughs) Many psychologists believe that, that essentially all hope, whatever it is at all that you hope for, anything, all hope fundamentally comes down to a desire to avoid death. All of it. So we hope for all sorts of things, don't we? We hope for our team to win. And we hope for Manchester City to lose. And they never do. And we hope for a career that goes well. And we hope for a spouse to make us happy. And then we hope to make our spouse happy. And then we hope for kids. And then we hope that our kids perform well. And we hope for prosperity. And we hope for health. And we hope for comfort. And we hope for success. And we spend all of our days hoping. I hope my parcel arrives on time. It's just like a little version of of all of the other hopes. Because there's something in there that's going to improve your life. Every hope is about life. And yet behind all of our hopes, behind them all, one hopeless moment looms. Your heart will stop. Your brain activity will cease. You will breathe your last breath. And then at the uttermost, you will stand before a perfect judge. So let's say you live a long and happy life, and healthy, and and you and you out earn and outrank and outlive every single one of your friends, and you go to a hundred funerals before your own, and I'm not sure that's any better than being the first to go. But let's say that's you. And uh, let's say you are now the most successful person that you've ever met in your life and, and everything that you ever hoped for comes to pass. You'll still die. And most people approach that moment completely devoid of hope. Thrashing. Just back to nature. Flailing. Railing at the hopelessness of the moment. And yet, the book of Hebrews dares to aver that in Christ your death, in fact, becomes your ultimate hope. It is the thing to look forward to, not the thing to fear. That one might face fully the righteous judgment of a perfect king at the end of every ounce of your strength, with your flesh failing. Exposed as one completely in default of an utterly unpayable debt. And yet, find peace. Find the peace that only comes from the perfect mediating work of the perfect priest. And who has guaranteed all of your debts with his indestructible life and risen from the grave. And that you would stand in that moment in righteousness and peace and in hope. That's the promise of the book of Hebrews. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, through complex words and obscure characters, you reveal fundamental truths. sometimes. So I thank you uh, for this mystery man of Melchizedek and how he looks ahead to Christ. And I thank you far more how Christ fulfills all of those hopes, giving us a greater hope. Lord, for your righteousness, for your, for your peace and for your hope, we praise you. Uh, and we ask, Lord, that you would give us tender hearts to receive anew that good news. In Jesus' name, amen.